The world is changing very quickly. For hundreds of years, Western colonial powers tried to conquer the entire planet. But in the past few decades, we've seen the rise of numerous countries in the global south, in particular China, and the creation of new infrastructure, economic and political institutions to integrate the global south to help develop their economies and create a multipolar world. I just released another episode in which I talked about the expansion of the BRICS block of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, and their plans to create a new currency for international trade and to be held in global reserves in order to challenge the dominance of the U.S. dollar. I will link to that in the description below. Today I'm going to be talking about the BRICS Bank, officially known as the New Development Bank. This is a financial institution that was created by the BRICS Bloc in 2014. It officially opened in 2015, and it was created as an alternative to the U.S.-dominated World Bank. The United States is the only country in the world that has veto power over the World Bank and can essentially control the bank and do whatever it wants. I'm going to talk about that later on in the analysis today. The New Development Bank, on the other hand, was created in order to help development in the global south. Its main goals are funding infrastructure projects, poverty alleviation, climate change mitigation, and overall development to help poor, formerly colonized countries in the global south. Now, I mentioned in the previous episode that the BRICS block is discussing expanding, adding new members. Well, the BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, is also planning on expanding. And by the way, it already has expanded. So it includes as current members the five founders of the BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. Current members also include Bangladesh, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt. And the Latin American nation Uruguay is currently in the process of officially joining and the BRICS Bank continues to grow. This June, it announced that three more countries will be officially joining as members, including Argentina, Saudi Arabia, and Zimbabwe. This is very important because Saudi Arabia is, of course, one of the world's largest producers of oil, along with Russia. Russia and Saudi Arabia are consistently among the top three oil producers in the entire world. So having both of them part of the BRICS bank and eventually the BRICS itself will show how the BRICS block is becoming a commodities powerhouse. This will overlap with already existing organizations like OPEC, and it will show how these countries will have significant influence in global commodities markets and won't be dominated simply by the Western powers. But furthermore, this expansion is important because it shows that the BRICS and the BRICS Bank are looking to get more partners in Africa and Latin America. Of course, Zimbabwe is in Africa, Argentina is in South America. So BRICS will not j simply be a Eurasian institution with the ma major Eurasian powers of China, Russia, India, but also further expand into other parts of the global south. This is also extremely important because of the growing move toward de-dollarization in many countries around the world. Saudi Arabia has been one of the key players in maintaining the petrodollar system. 
since an agreement was signed in 1974 between the United States and Saudi Arabia, Riyadh agreed to sell all of its oil in dollars, and this helped maintain an international demand for dollars after the U.S. government under Richard Nixon removed the dollar from its link to gold in 1971, and the U.S. dollar became a freely floating fiat currency. So in order to maintain global demand for the dollar, Saudi Arabia agreed to sell its oil in dollars, which being the world's largest oil producer at the time and the de facto leader of OPEC, the oil producing organization, this meant that many countries around the world that needed to import oil needed to get access to dollars, maintaining this artificial demand, which is what has allowed the United States for decades, among other factors, to maintain a massive trade deficit with the rest of the world, a current account deficit, so the U.S. can suck in the surplus value of other countries and import much more than it exports without facing inflation and the devaluation of its currency. However, as Saudi Arabia integrates further into the BRIC system, that means that it's likely going to sell its oil in other currencies, including the Chinese renminbi, leading to discussion of the petro yuan. Yuan, by the way, is the name of the unit of accounts of the Chinese currency, the renminbi. Meanwhile, another major producer of oil and gas, which is the United Arab Emirates, which is already a member of the BRICS bank and has applied to join the BRICS bloc itself, the UAE is already selling its liquefied natural gas to China in Chinese yuan. So as the BRICS system expands and it fuels de-dollarization, this is going to be a massive blow to the hegemony of the U.S. dollar and the petrodollar system that undergirds U.S. economic hegemony. Now, this is something that the BRICS itself is openly speaking of. Brazil's leftist president, Lula da Silva, has given many speeches talking about the importance of creating a new currency, challenging the hegemony of the U.S. dollar, not only within the BRICS itself, but also within South America. Lula is overseeing the process of creating a regional currency for trade to remove the middleman of the U.S. dollar. But furthermore... In the New Development Bank, the BRICS Bank, there is also significant discussion of de-dollarization. This March, the BRICS Bank announced its new president is Dilma Rousseff, the former president of Brazil from the same left-wing workers' party of Brazil's current president, Lula da Silva. Dilma Rousseff has made it clear that the BRICS Bank is moving toward de-dollarization and plans in the next few years to give nearly one-third of its loans in other currencies, not the U.S. dollar. Rousseff first made this announcement back in April in an interview with the Chinese media. At the same time, it is necessary to find ways to avoid foreign exchange risk and other issues such as being dependent on a single currency such as the U.S. dollar. The good news is that we are seeing many countries choosing to trade using their own currencies. China and Brazil, for instance, are agreeing to exchange with RMB and the Brazilian real. At the NDB, we have committed to it in our strategy. For the period from 2022 to 2026, NDB has to lend 30% in local currency, and so 30% of our loan book will be financed in the currencies of our member countries. 
That will be extremely important to help our countries avoid exchange rate risks and shortage in finance that hinder long-term investments. Now, Dilma Rousseff made it clear there that there are several reasons why the New Development Bank is seeking alternatives to the U.S. dollar. First is that by constantly relying on the U.S. dollar, this really hurts countries in the global south that have fluctuating exchange rates. What does this mean? So every time you exchange your currency, if you're a country like Brazil, which has its currency, the real, when they exchange for dollars, it weakens their currency and strengthens the U.S. currency. So when they're trading in the U.S. currency, it actually helps the United States, strengthens its economic power, and weakens the currency of Brazil. Because most of the time when a country is importing, it's those imports are invoiced in dollars, so they exchange for dollars. However, another important factor here is that the U.S. domestic monetary policy has an impact on the rest of the world. In the United States, there's been a lot of consumer price index inflation. And in order to ostensibly stop that inflation, the U.S. Federal Reserve, the central bank, has been aggressively raising interest rates. The real goal, as the chair of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, said, is to reduce wages and increase unemployment to create an, an artificial economic crisis, which weakens the power of workers and strengthens the power of capital. And that's their way of bringing down inflation, always putting the burden on workers, trying to decrease their wages and their, their power in the economy. However, while the U.S. has been aggressively raising interest rates, that has had an impact on the global economy because the dollar is the global reserve currency used for much of international trade. What that means is that as the Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates, it actually strengthens the value of the dollar against other currencies. And what that means is that other countries' central banks also need to raise interest rates if they don't want their currency to be significantly devalued, which will artificially create an economic crisis in their country as well. So this has pressured many global south economies, especially those that are heavily reliant on imports of things like energy and fertilizer and food and technology. It has put downward pressure on their currencies, which are partially being devalued, which makes it even more expensive to import and also more expensive to pay off dollar denominated debt that many of these countries are trapped in with U.S. dominated organizations like the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and the World Bank. And the New Development Bank is particularly important here because it is an alternative to the World Bank, which has a history of trapping Global South countries in debt like this. Furthermore, it also leads to capital flight often because people who are invested in emerging markets in places like Brazil they might simply withdraw their capital and invest it back in the United States or hold it in, you know, different investment funds because now they're going to get a higher return because of the rising interest rate. So the point is, this is referred to as Triffin's Dilemma because when the United States has its own domestic monetary policy, it doesn't just impact the United States. It impacts the entire world because the dollar is the global reserve currency. This is one of many ways in which the exorbitant privilege of the U.S. dollar 
hurts everyone. The United States is the only country that benefits. And not even workers in the United States, as I pointed out. It's large corporations and billionaires who benefit from these policies. Finally, another important factor to mention is sanctions. Many countries in the global south are afraid of being sanctioned unilaterally, illegally, by the United States. Currently, more than one-third of the global population lives in countries that are already sanctioned by the U.S., and Washington is constantly threatening to expand that. So countries in the BRICS, the New Development Bank, are seeking alternatives to the U.S. dollar as well because that means that if they create new financial architecture, new mechanisms for trade and for holding different currencies in their international reserves, they can't be threatened by Western sanctions. The U.S. can't simply steal their foreign exchange reserves like the U.S. has stolen billions and billions of dollars in the foreign exchange reserves of Venezuela, Iran, Afghanistan, and Russia. This all explains why the BRICS and the BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, are prioritizing de-dollarization. It's not happening overnight. It's a slow, gradual process, but it's picking up steam. And the president of the New Development Bank, Dilma Rousseff, made it clear in the annual meeting that the NDB held on May 30th and May 31st that de-dollarization is a priority. She reiterated that the goal is by 2026 to have 30%, nearly one-third, of the bank's loans denominated in other currencies. And this is already happening, by the way. As of 2023, 22% of the NDB's loans are already denominated in other currencies. And the NDB has given out billions of dollars of bonds that are denominated in yuan. These are known as panda bonds. This is These are bonds given out by a non-Chinese institution in the Chinese currency. So we're seeing significant changes. In this annual meeting on May 30th and May 31st, Dilma Rousseff said, quote, we need to create a diversified global currency system. In the future, it is unlikely that one single currency can dominate the world's currency system. We will see more local currencies used to settle trade. This point is absolutely crucial because what we're seeing is the gradual de-dollarization in particular of trade, in particular of commodities trading. So one of the points that defenders of U.S. dollar hegemony have frequently made, which has an element of truth to it, is that the U.S. dollar is still the most popular by far currency used for investments, in particular for central banks around the world holding their foreign exchange reserves in U.S. dollar-denominated assets like treasuries, which are historically a relatively secure investment, although with the politicization of the U.S. dollar and the U.S. seizing the foreign exchange reserves of countries like Russia, it's become much less secure over time. However, even that argument is exaggerated. As the prominent economist Stephen Jen has pointed out, and he was previously a currency analyst at the U.S. investment bank Morgan Stanley, he pointed out in his research this April that when you adjust for price changes, the U.S. dollar share of the foreign exchange reserves held by central banks around the world has declined from 73% in 2001 
to 47% as of 2022, less than half of global reserves. So even the decline in the holding of dollars in reserves is happening much more rapidly than many people thought. Although I would again emphasize that I think we're going to see more significant decline and more rapid decline in the use of the dollar in international trade. We're already seeing the use of many different currencies in regional trade between Russia and Iran, Russia and India, Russia and China. Of course, Russia is driving a lot of this because of the Western sanctions on Russia. So as we see the global de-dollarization trend grow, and as we see BRICS expand and the BRICS bank expand, it's going to go hand in hand with more and more de-dollarization and the move toward a multipolar currency world. That mainstream economist I mentioned, Stephen Jen, who was a currency analyst at the investment bank Morgan Stanley, he recently did an interview in which he said this very clearly, quote, more likely we will evolve from a unipolar reserve currency world to a multipolar world. And when he said unipolar reserve currency, he meant, of course, the United U.S. dollar. In fact, the mainstream financial press in the West has been admitting this fact that we are in an increasingly multipolar world. The chair of the editorial board of the Financial Times, Gillian Tett, told investors in March that they should, quote, prepare for a multipolar currency world. And the Financial Times is the leading financial newspaper in the West. It is probably the most influential financial media outlet. And they're acknowledging this fact. That was not the only time either. Back in January, the well-known, very prominent economist, Sultan Potsar, wrote an article in which he said that the unipolar era of U.S. hegemony is over. And he said the world is increasingly multipolar. Potsar added that, quote, the pace of de-dollarization appears to have picked up especially as BRICS countries and BRICS curious countries de-dollarize their trade. And Sultan Posar wrote, quote, If less trade is invoiced in U.S. dollars and there is a dwindling recycling of dollar surpluses into traditional reserve assets such as treasuries, that is U.S. treasury bonds, that's U.S. government debt, the exorbitant privilege that the U.S. dollar holds as the international reserve currency could be under assault. These are not Russian government officials or Chinese government officials. These are very established mainstream economists and analysts in the West writing in the, the mainstream Western financial press acknowledging this fact. However, many people in the Western political class refuse to wake up to this reality. They have their head in the sand. And that's why the U.S. is so insistent on expanding its new Cold War on China and Russia to prevent the decline of the hegemony of the U.S. empire and prevent the rise of the global south and particularly China. Now, finally, before I conclude here, I want to briefly talk about the World Bank and why countries in the BRICS have created an alternative. Because the reality is that the World Bank is not a world bank. It's actually Washington's bank. The World Bank is based physically in Washington, D.C., and the World Bank states very clearly on its website that the United States, quote, remains the largest shareholder of the World Bank group today, and it even boasts, quote, 
as the only World Bank Group shareholder that retains veto power over certain changes in the bank structure, the United States plays a unique role in influencing and shaping global development priorities. So the United States is the only country on earth that has veto power in the World Bank. The U.S. basically controls the World Bank. The World Bank website points out, it boasts once again, quote, Traditionally, the World Bank president has always been a U.S. citizen nominated by the United States. Again, the World Bank is actually not correctly named. It is the Washington Bank. All we have to do is look at the voting power of different countries inside the World Bank, specifically the World Bank Group's lending arm, which is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the IBRD. When people talk about the World Bank, they're almost always talking about the IBRD. And if you look at it, the United States has roughly 16% voting power, which is significantly more than any other country. The second biggest is Japan with 7% voting power. China has less than 6% voting power, despite having a population of 1.4 billion people, more than four times the U.S. population. Even Germany, a major U.S. ally, only has 4% voting power. So the U.S. has four times the voting power of Germany. Britain has less than four. India, with a population of 1.4 billion people, is tied with France, which has a population of less than 66 million people. Each has 3.8% voting power in the World Bank. The BRICS Bank, the New Development Bank, is not like this. There is not one country in the Brinks Bank that has complete control. There is no country that has veto power. And in the 2014 founding agreement made it very clear that the president of the bank shall be elected from one of the founding members on a rotational basis. So it changes between Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. It also said in the founding agreement that the vice president must be from another founding member to make sure that there is more democracy. And it made it clear that the initial subscribed capital that was used to found the bank in 2014 shall be equally distributed among the founding members and the voting power of each member shall equal its subscribed shares in the capital stock of the bank, which is equally shared. So when the BRICS developed the New Development Bank, when they created this as an alternative to the World Bank, they wanted to make sure that it did not mirror the problems in the creation of the World Bank itself because it's dominated by the United States. They wanted to create a true alternative to that. And the World Bank itself was born in the 1944 Bretton Woods Conference that established also the International Monetary Fund, the IMF, and establish the dollar as the global reserve currency, giving Washington its exorbitant privilege. So it's no surprise that the Washington Bank, I mean the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund are dominated by the U.S. because they are part of the same Bretton Woods structure that put the U.S. dollar at the heart of the global financial system. And none of this is to mention the fact that the World Bank, along with the IMF, has a history of trapping countries in the global south in unpayable debt and then forcing 
political reforms on those countries, demanding that they impose a series of harsh right-wing neoliberal economic policies as part of the so-called structural adjustment programs, which includes forcing countries to privatize state assets, reduce the minimum wage, cut social services, reduce spending on health care and education, privatize all you know state-owned companies, deregulate markets. These are the neoliberal right-wing economic policies, the free market fundamentalist policies that are imposed on countries, especially in the global south, when they can't pay back debt to the World Bank or the IMF. The New Development Bank, the BRICS Bank, does not require the same political conditionalities of free market fundamentalism like the Bretton Woods institutions do. And a former consultant who worked with the World Bank, John Perkins, he spelled this all out very clearly in his well-known book, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He described the World Bank as, quote, an agent of global empire. And he explained how the World Bank is part of an infrastructure dominated by the United States, along with the IMF and the so-called U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID. And together, these institutions cheat poor countries in the global south out of trillions of dollars, and they funnel money into the coffers of huge corporations and the pockets of a few wealthy families who control the planet's natural resources. John Perkins said that economic hitmen at the World Bank and other U.S.-dominated institutions play a game as old as empire. This is imperialism. This is the reality of how the U.S.-led imperialist system functions. And that's why countries in the global south are trying to create new alternatives. The BRICS is one of those alternatives, although it's probably the most significant, but it's one of many. Latin America has its alternative uh, political organizations for regional integration like UNASUR and CELAC, the community of Latin American and Caribbean states, which are being strengthened. Latin America has the Bolivarian Alliance for the Peoples of the Americas, which is an alternative economic alliance. Latin America is working on building its own new infrastructure to create a new regional currency. Africa has institutions like the African Union, and there were attempts by leaders like Libya's former leader Muammar Gaddafi, who wanted to create a pan-African currency backed by gold until he was killed in the NATO war in 2011 that destroyed Libya as a functioning central state. In Southeast Asia, there's the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. In Eurasia, there is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which includes China, India, Russia, and Pakistan, and Iran just joined. These are all part of a major historic shift in the world and power is moving away from the Western colonial powers that have dominated the world for hundreds of years since the rise of European colonialism and power is shifting back to the global south where the majority of the global population lives. And here at Geopolitical Economy Report, I report on this regularly. I am Ben Norton, the editor and if you like the work that we do, please subscribe on whatever platform you're watching or listening on, whether it's YouTube or if you're listening to the podcast version, please subscribe. It helps to promote our material in the algorithm. And if you also want to support our work, we're completely independent. 
please consider going to geopoliticaleconomy.com slash support. And there are multiple ways to support us. The best way is you can become a patron over at patreon.com slash geopoliticaleconomy. And that really helps go a long way. We have no big sponsors. We have no institutional support. We rely entirely on small donations from listeners and viewers. I want to thank everyone. If you want to get access to all of the links to all of the sources that I mentioned in my analysis today, in the description below, I also have a link to an article at geopoliticaleconomy.com. It has all of the sources so you can fact check me. Again, I want to thank everyone. I'm Ben Norton. This is Geopolitical Economy Report. I will see you next time.